Welcome to Syracuse On Stage. I'm Melissa Crespo, the Associate Artistic Director at Syracuse Stage. And this is the fourth and final panel from the Cold Read Festival of New Work. I had the pleasure of discussing theater and criticism with Eric Grody, the director of the Gold Ring Arts, Journalism, and Communications program at Syracuse University, and co-editors of Three Views on Theater, Sarah Rose Leonard and Brittany Samuel. Here we go. How are y'all doing? Hi. So good. And I know it's early where you are, Sarah Rose. <laughs> yeah, but I'm here and I'm happy to be here. Oh, good. Well, let's get right going. Let's get started. So first question, how has the practice of theater criticism changed since the start of COVID? And I know that that is a big question, but feel free to also talk about, you know, the online streaming, the digital productions, then pivoting to in-person. And now we're in this sort of weird hybrid of that where some people are still doing digital, some people are doing both, some people are only doing in-person. So how has that changed the landscape for you all as critics? That's a good, I think we're happy to take it on the three views. Yeah, go for it. So as you know, Melissa is a former editor of Three Views. Um, We kind of began this project at the top of 2020, but obviously things had to shift. So Three Views wasn't able to fulfill its original mission of multiplicity and um, publishing multiple views on a theater piece um, when it wanted to. So what the team at that time decided to do was shift and um, publish, you know, reflections and just take a, a, a temperature check of how artists and art makers were feeling in the moment. So really, we didn't come back until our original mission of actually publishing reviews until 2021, um, when shows came back in the fall. So we're dealing with a little bit of a different situation because we just didn't have the opportunity to cover a lot of digital theater. And now I think people are really trying to get their money back and, you know, butts back in seats. But um, I think one thing we have taken away from the shift is just flexibility because we have to have a lot of grace for the shows that are um, back in person. I think as a critic, you know, you always want to be honest with what you're experiencing, but you also have to know that, you know, a principal cast member might've just got COVID and that understudy had one week of rehearsal. So I think just going into everything with a really open heart and a flexible mind about what you're getting into when you're reviewing a show. And I'll just add, I think we really, we had this moment where we were like, are we going to review anything digital in 2021? And we also internally decided that we really wanted to champion the work that was coming back. And Melissa, you um, spearheaded this, so you know, but the we did this archive of all the shows that closed in, um, in 2020. And we wanted to prioritize the shows that we knew had closed prematurely or didn't get to be performed, but were scheduled to perform. Um, we wanted to really prioritize what does that look like when it comes back? So for many people, it just looked like, oh, the show is here. But we wanted to be like, remember when this was closed and everyone's hearts were broken who worked on it? Um, and so we really wanted to capture, especially because our reviews are, are, are embracing subjectivity. What is your personal experience as you walk in the room? What are you bringing in? What biases are you holding? Do you know anyone on stage? All of that, rather than ignoring it, wanted to be, we want to have it be part of the experience um, for a reader if they're reading a review, knowing who that person is and where they're coming from. So especially if something was closed, being like, this was like, this was a show I was so excited about and here's why and here's what time the time in between then and now feels like, what does it feel like to walk into a room of people again? Who's in that audience? Really wanting to try to be a capsule of the moment of theater returning as well. So we wanted to kind of honor those two experiences of closing and returning. Well, and I guess I, I would say to your question that I, I wish there was an even weirder hybrid of, of live and streaming right now. I mean, to me, that streaming window is starting to feel like kind of like that Prague spring where everyone was like, wow, here's a whole new way of doing things. And I feel like this is this mantra you keep hearing of like live theater is back, live theater is back. I feel like you're hearing that most and most loudly by people who have a financial stake in 2023 mm-hmm. looking like 2019. And just let's just let's just pretend this never happened. We'll take a mulligan and 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 go back to the way we always did things. And that's not a good thing, in my opinion. So I I, I feel like one of the things that criticism can really do now 
is to remind everyone that theater is more accessible than it used to be and and anyone can see lots of things from lots of places in lots of ways um and that's important yeah thank you as speaking as someone in a leadership position at, at a big institution it's it's really hard <laughs> sure uh and and just so everybody uh, knows from what Sarah and Brittany mentioned, um, it's kind of funny uh, in thinking of myself as an as an editor. I felt more like a theater historian because I'm a director, you know, I'm not a journalist. <laughs> and so the archival um, aspect of the way that pivoted very quickly when COVID hit and three of you had to suddenly figure out what they were going to do was really fun and it kept me alive but i'm so grateful to sarah and Brittany and, and the lilies who so, still are involved with three views for giving three views a life raft and continuing it and bringing it back to its original mission and you two have really been um you are you know doing doing the work so that's so so wonderful for all of us back to what we were just talking about and mentioning the difference between digital and live so I guess it's a two-handed question. Do you approach reviews differently depending on the medium? And are you finding, because I'm personally not, but maybe I'm maybe I'm wrong, that people do consider understudies when they are reviewing. Do they even consider that? Or or challenges of because so so many rehearsals are fraught with with COVID and sickness and, you know, just the difficulty of getting everybody in the same room on the same schedule. Brittany, have you found anything in that regard? Um, in terms of a different approach, I'll say my approach is always the same, no matter what I'm uh -huh. getting into. I mean, I remember I reviewed Shadowland, I think it was called by Erica Dickerson Dispenza, if anyone knows that play, the public theater produced it as a podcast um, or a radio play, audio play. Um, and certainly I think my approach whenever I'm reviewing anything is the same. I keep an open mind, open heart. I'm watching the show for the experience of it, but also kind of waiting for the hook, the point of view that directors, artists have imbued into the play for that to catch me. Um, I think if anything, it's it's just a matter of expanding, expanding our mindset of what theater can be. Like I, me as a critic, I'm gonna go in and do my job the same way but I'm also gonna alert my audience. Like you might not experience this show in the same way that you're used to. I think the onus becomes on us as critics to challenge ourselves to think differently um, while still making it, I guess, easy for general audiences to make decisions about what they spend their money and time to go see or listen to or experience or whatever the case may be. Um, I think it was an opportunity for us as writers and critics to step up to the plate. I love that. So in that regard, what, in your view, makes a critic qualified to review a piece of theater? I know that's a very big question, but it's one that I think we keep asking over and over again, which I think is good. I think it's healthy to challenge criticism as a whole. Uh, anybody wanna, Eric, I see you. I mean, yeah, I think I think the most important thing is a, is a year of graduate study in arts journalism. Mm -hmm. I'm kidding, that's, that's my... Uh, <laughs> Just you never know when your dean's listening into these things. And um, I'm out just like that. <laughs> um, oh well, it's never too late. Um, I mean, to me, the biggest—I'll tell you what—the worst thing is. I—I I will always remember this. I was at a show at the Atlantic years ago. It was really a fascinating piece. And at an intermission, I saw this couple who were getting ready to leave, and they said, "This place is this piece is horrible. I have we have I have no idea what's going to happen in the second act. Let's get out of here." And I'm like isn't that what you want when you go to the theater like that that's that's exact that's that's the person who least should be a critic in my mind because to me what, what's most important is just having like a certain level of curiosity and a willingness to meet the art at least somewhat meet the artists where they are and say like this doesn't hit my it's not about your preconceived notion of what this piece or this genre should be or needs to be but just like all right I've got my thoughts but you're gonna have your thoughts too and let's see where that all where the dust settles um, I think taste is frankly overrated. Like I know that Pauline Kael or Ken Tynan or Hilton Owls, I mean, some of the people I think of as the real, you know, towering critical figures, I don't agree with them an awful lot of the time. And that's totally fine. They just have, they have really great thoughts and they have really great words to put those thoughts into. And that's what makes them great in my mind. 
Um, I would just love to to add that that curiosity note to me is is the most important. And and this may be obvious, but like an ability to write, articulate your point of view, um, draw people in. Like ultimately, critics are are people who should be interested in getting people to continue reading what they're writing. <laughs> I don't know what like that's a clumsy way of saying it, but I think sometimes we overlook the fact that like criticism is is forceful articulation. Um, and so how are you having a point of view and saying that in a way that is compelling? Like the best, I, I read criticism for fun. That's why I'm here. I'm not a critic, but I just think it's one of the most beautiful art forms. Like how are you seeing something and doing this very natural thing that we as humans do, which is judging <laughs> and, and, and doing, doing it in a way that is, um, considerate of what we're seeing helps place it into a context that um, really deepens our appreciation of the thing itself. Like I, th I think the, the critics I don't have a lot of love for aren't capable of that um, deeper analysis and being like, where is this artist in time and space? Where is this work? How is this work calling in its community and its ancestors? And what precedes this work? Like theater is not made in a vacuum. It's made in community of all the art forms. It is completely tied to other human beings and other moments in history. So how are you bringing that in to your writing? Um, and, and unfortunately in like a short amount of time, like a time constraint. So I think like there's a beauty to me in the pressure of the time constraint is like, you've got to say what you mean and you've got to mean it and you've got to do a really good job. And to me, that's actually like a very exciting prompt. Um, and at Three Views, we really try to push people to have an opinion and be themselves in that opinion, which is harder than we thought it would be, um, I think, as, as a prompt for a writer. I don't know, Brittany, do you want to add on to that? I mean, I think you both covered it. The only other thing I think I'll say is that I think people, I know I certainly did have a stereotype about people who end up in this field as being critical about everything in the world. Like that's that friend you don't really want to invite anywhere. You know, <laughs> they're going to be judgy. They're going to, you know, make fun of everything. But I feel like in real life, it should be the exact opposite. The person walking with the most open mind and open heart is the one that ought to be a critic. We're not all like hunchback people that you see like in Ratatouille and all these movies, um, the stereotype that's kind of been drawn in the media. I think um, curiosity and openness to receiving a message, an emotion, a, a drive, anything is what makes a great critic. And I think you have to be open to the entire world, like not just when you walk into the theater to see the play, like when you're reading, when you're watching silly television, when you're playing with your niece or nephew, I think you just have to be an open-hearted person. Oh, I love that. You know, Brittany, something you said in an interview we did a year, I think almost a year ago for um, Three Views when you were in the BIPOC Critics Lab um, with Jose that stuck with me was you said critics are, are theater historians. Mm. And that really blew my mind and changed my whole thinking of criticism because it did. <laughs> because, yeah, because I, I was realizing I'm like, oh, yeah, in grad school or and now as a, as a I'm, I'm a professor, uh, I, you know, we, the only thing we have, if we don't have video, which doesn't even really do it justice either, is a, is a review. And, mm -hmm. and I also really like the word review, we're re, re-examining, reviewing the work that was on stage. And we can't breathe that same air that the audience and the performers were doing, but we can have this person's perspective of the show, the time period, you know, what kind of actor, what kind of choices and why, and instead of it being a good or bad, and, and sometimes it should be a good or bad, like that was amazing or that was questionable, but but more context, because, you know, I, I, I personally love uh, comparing shows, um, especially already made shows like, like classical titles mm -hmm. uh, and, and seeing what the choices were and why. And I've been asked to do that as an assistant director uh, many times from other directors if they're questioning a choice. And so, um, yeah, Brittany, you you really put it, put me, uh, blew my mind open there when you said that. <laughs> and I haven't well, been able to stop thinking to know. 
<laughs> no, I, I mean, I'll say, I think especially right now, I mean, I've only been working as a critic for, the, I would say, the past few years, but it certainly seems to me like shows are rotating in and out so quickly. It blows my mind, the openings and closings. So I think now more than ever, we need to lock in history, the fact that people were making art. Maybe it lasted six weeks and then it was out and done. But, you know, people's sacrifices were sacrifices were made at this time. Um, and it's still kind of a crazy time to be producing theater. And I think more people need to lock it in history. Yeah. We need, yeah, I, yeah, I just second that. <laughs> Eric and Brittany, you both, uh, you know, you're active critics and, and freelance for multiple publications. How does that, does that affect the way you write depending on the publication? Eric, do you want to start? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, so because I work with a lot of students and students are often thinking a lot about their voice and how their voice is important. And it is, it's crucially important, but I do have to remind them that unless you're just like on your own blog or your own Tumblr or something like what you're writing about is, has a specific readership. I mean, there are people who, who go to that website or read that publication um, because it resonates for them and speaks to them. And so you want to try to write what they are to a lesser degree, like accustomed to reading and what they're, what they came for. So mm -hmm. like, you know, I've written for some places and, you know, if, if a play reminded me of an Edward Bond work or an Adrian Kennedy work or whatever, like I could just like name drop that and feel totally comfortable doing that. And then I'd write for some places where I'd have to actually take a step back and 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 contextualize that a little bit more and or, you know, or just have the tone match. And and that's fine. Like, it's still my voice, but it's my voice calibrated to my readers in that moment. Mm -hmm. um, and I, that takes a little practice. Sounds like you're almost like a director in a TV series where you didn't direct the pilot. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, a, well that's put. a perfect analogy, I think. Yeah, I'll also <laughs> just say that sometimes I think about the, just the function of the review I'm writing. Like, I think American Theatre Magazine is like a popular publication, but they actually don't publish straightforward reviews. Like, they mm -hmm. don't want show was good or bad, lighting was this or that. They want like reflective, beautiful writing, kind of like what we pursue at Three Views. Um, so anytime I see a show there, I know I'm really trying to lock into the emotions and trying to replicate the experience of what someone may have. But I also know that, you know, it's more long form. I have more words to write beautiful things. Whereas <laughs> like Broadway News, where I, I work pretty regularly, they are a website, but they also produce the Broadway Briefing, which is a daily newsletter people in the industry get. So I know people reading the review there, they're probably scanning, like maybe looking yeah. for keywords it's just a shorter amount of words that I'm contracted to produce. So although like my intention and approach is always the same, I think about the function of what I'm writing and like how will it actually be more helpful? Because if I spend three paragraphs in an email talking about something I think is lyrical and beautiful, I might not actually be doing a service as a critic. I might not be doing a service to the reader. So. No, that's really helpful. I, I have never thought of that uh, before. Sarah, you're a dramaturg primarily, and and I and you're a very good dramaturg. Uh, and so, and I think it's it's actually really really great that we have a dramaturg, you know, in the criticism field of, of a publication like Three Views. How do you approach criticism, or and what is what does that form take for you? Yeah. I mean, I, like I said, I think I'm just a huge fan. <laughs> um, <laughs> like I, um, it's funny, like your, your like um, question about like who's qualified. I think I, I bring a more expansive view of who's qualified because mm -hmm. there's no, um, like when we're, I, I do a lot of reaching out to people to review and a lot of the people I know in the field are other artists. And, and sometimes Brittany and I have a conversation of being like, oh, should we like find someone who's like a real critic to review this show? Um, and then we have to have that conversation internally with ourselves and like under a time pressure because we're trying to get someone to come to a show. Hmm. Um, and ultimately, a lot of the artists that I, th I think have something to say about a piece of theater um, 
are there because of my perspective as a dramaturg. Like, oh, I know this person is actually this person's mentor and this person kind of writes like this other person and these people um, worked together once but haven't worked together in a long time. So I think she'd have an interesting perspective on there. You know, like that mm. kind of web that I can see as someone who's been reading and observing um, and working on shows um, from a perspective of, of a champion and of someone who's like pushing work to be the best that it can possibly be. That mm. makes a kind of outside inside eye, I, I hope has, has served three views um, because that's ultimately what I think I, I want, that is the change I want to see in the field. Like I want people who actually have that insider view perspective to be welcomed in as critics. And I do think it's super important that we have critics who don't know anyone and are walking in more blind um, or like I know Brittany when has, she has a review she's like oh my god I don't know anything about this I'm walking in and once in a while she'll be like hey can I read that do you have that script you know? <laughs> and, and like that that mix I think is a really healthy for our field um, and I, I hope that we can have a lot more of it um, in the future so you're what like a casting director she knows everyone in every play <laughs> I know none just not, not true, but I think it, there's a generational thing that's also interesting, like, um, you know, Brittany, not to give away our ages, are like roughly 10 years apart, um, <laughs> but um, that that's important. Like, I really think yeah, like the yeah. more we can have intergenerational mm -hmm. conversations as well, because it shouldn't just be who I know, that, that would be perpetuating one of the major problems in theater which is um, the insider baseball yeah. and hiring our friends. However, that's how it happens. We hire our friends, it's like, that's, that's kind of there. So yeah. healthy, again, like a healthy mix of like, who do you know, who do I know, who do we not know, how do we find them is essential to the growth of the theater physicists in the field and our field in general. So, um, you know, the more we can have conversations cross genre, cross generation, cross identity politics, the better um, and healthier we'll be. I forget also Brittany's age all the time. And then I'm always astounded when I remember because yeah, girl, <laughs> you make us all in the dust. <laughs> uh, Eric, so you teach journalism. Mm -hmm. I think you're the only educator on that in the field uh, on this panel. And what is how do you teach journalism? What's that like? It, it it's it can sometimes be hard to put that stuff into into words. Although I'm actually going to change, I'm going to take Sarah's hearing that. I'm going to I think I might turn real critic. I might make my my job title now. I'm, I'm into that. Um, <laughs> I mean, one thing I really like about teaching, this is from a more selfish standpoint, is just like just like I tell a lot of my writers, if you can ever take on any side projects, editing. Um, editing makes you a stronger writer and vice yeah. versa. Like sometimes, you know, a lot of everyone always talks about like practicing what you preach. Like I also, it helps me like preach what I practice. Like it, it, it helps remind me like the things that I think are important enough about what we do to devote classroom time to it. It's also a good time to check in. Like, are you actually doing that? Like, or is that even like the a currently valuable way of thinking about it? Um, and the fact that students, you know, tend to stay the same in age as I get older and they, you know, rotates into an endless stream of, of graduate students and undergraduate students, um, you know, their cultural references shift, um, their ways of thinking about a lot of different aspects of what we do shift. And that can be really valuable to, um, to both to remind them that there are older ways, not necessarily better, but not necessarily worse ways. Um, but also for me to try to absorb, you know, where they're coming from and, and think how to synthesize those. Can be really valuable. That's awesome. Uh, well, I'm glad you're at the helm of that in the Newhouse School. So we've started touching on it a little bit um, in terms of some of the potential pitfalls in the field of criticism of you know hiring the same people and things like that. So can we entertain what you might feel are some of the biggest problems you see in the world of theater criticism today and or what has to evolve and uh, how it can? I know that's a very big question, uh, just from experience and what you're dealing with. I think the, pro the problems 
<laughs> I want to be like, the problem is the Times is not stepping up to the plate, but that would call us back <laughs> to the monolith. Um, and Eric, I love your title, Real Critic. I mean, I think part of the problem is actually that like the real, the real critics, um, we don't have them to pass on the wisdom. Like the people who are incredibly smart and of the older generation um, are, have left. Brittany and I tried to do a project where we, we talked to um, people who um, were critics of color who had left the field and we're still interested in doing that project. It's been incredibly hard because they've left the field. Like like the, the people, the people yeah. who are older and wiser and have had a lot of experience in the field of criticism have had to move on. Um, and a lot of, and then like a lot of amazing, really smart um, white identified critics um, as they got older moved into academia. No offense, Eric. Like, I think there's there's kind of like this, who, who can you point to who you're like, they're amazing and they're writing all the time. It's like whoever the, the, the New Yorker keeps, bless them for actually, I love the New Yorker criticism section because it's like, no, no, we're really taking this quite seriously. Here's an entire section of our magazine, but that's just like, that's a, that's a slice, right? So like, who can we actually learn from and where are they? And um, where do they go and how do we have those conversations? It's like trying to, you know, herd cats. It's really, it's really been challenging. And I will just name that like Helen Shaw um, has been three views patron saint. Like every time I'm, we're like, what do we, what do you think about X, Y, Z? It's Helen. And that's just one person. And she's, and then she, she, I mean, Helen's amazing. I don't know how she doesn't burn out, but the, the people we call upon and the people who are employed all the time, you know this, Melissa, you burn out. And so then we lose a critic and it's, it's super easy for a critic to burn out. So the, the biggest problem is burnout, but I also will just say like the biggest problem is that we um, don't have connections in the criticism field to really be able to pass on wisdom and, and tips and tricks for not burning out. I, I mean, artists, period. And I, I consider some critics artists. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, burnout is especially with this ongoing pandemic um and every everyone's lives have changed so dramatically a lot of people have left new york city uh people are you know, I, I, which isn't always a bad thing because <laughs> i think it's decentralized theater a bit and made new york not the main 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 hub because it is happening all around the country but yeah it's tricky Brittany and eric do you want to add anything to that well one thing I should. I would be remiss if I didn't do a, a quick shout outs to two to two people. One, uh, a Gold Ring alumna, uh, Deep Tran, who just mm -hmm. two days ago was named uh, editor in chief of Playbill. Yay! Which, which is, I mean, when you're talking about like the the young generation, um, I mean, she's she's. It's a very positive, encouraging uh, sign that that Deep just got this really plum job. I'll also mention that one of the other young people who I'm excited about, Maya Phillips, who's come on sort of come on strong at the Times. Will actually be here at, uh, at Newhouse in two weeks on November second to come and talk about her new book and about theater criticism. Um, one of the challenges that I think is is I'm seeing play out in criticism right now is the idea of the canon and the idea of the canon and the sort of the politic politicization of the idea of the canon. I mean, I have written a lot about musical theater, which you know where people are often reviving or wanting to revive what I would call foundational texts like West Side Story or The King and I or Corgi and Bess or, you know, a, a lot of these works. Um, and they are foundational texts for better and for worse. And I think the and is the important word in there um, because I've seen a lot of critics, a lot, I've certainly seen some critics who would say like, for example, how dare you come after Porgy and Bess? Like this is, this is, this, this piece is, is a crucially important milestone in, in theater history. And I've also seen critics who say, uh, I see very little merit in seeing again what three white guys had to say about black life in 1943. Like the, and, and I feel like that split isn't always necessarily generational, but it does tend to be in a lot of ways. Um, and I just, I look forward to seeing and playing a role in hastening a day where um, more critics can find themselves somewhere in the middle of that discussion that these pieces do have value and they also would really benefit and our society would really benefit from looking at them with a fresh set of eyes. Mm. Um, 
So that's that's one place thing that jumps to mind for me. That's great, Eric. I feel like you're talking like a director. That's that. Those are the things I that keep me up at night <laughs> in terms of you know the question of you know why am I directing this play? Why now? What? Why does it matter? Um, yeah, I'm glad to hear that coming from someone who is a journalist. Uh, Brittany, did you want to add anything? The only thing I think I'll add is, um, and again, I say this as someone who I still consider myself to be pretty fresh. Um, I don't feel like there's a lot of investment in criticism and I'm talking like financially, like in terms of programs. I mean, the National Critics Institute, I think is the top tier program for people who wanna be trained train as critics in this country. And that has been established for a while by the Eugene O'Neill Theater Center. Now there are a couple others that can name the BIPOC Critics Lab. Like we said, I went through that process. They're um, supported by the Kennedy Center. Um, I think there's another one called Pointner, P-O-Y-T-N-E-R. Um, they have, uh, yeah, I might not be pronouncing the word correctly, but I know they have a critics uh, training program. But when you like line up the programs that exist specifically to train people to write about theater, compare the pro compared to the programs that exist for actors, designers, directors, just other people in this field, I mean, the the scales are not balanced at all. And I get that there are there's a need, a greater need, I think, for the people, for more people to train how to make the art. But I think when we talk, like even when we um, rally, you know, state officials and politicians for people to invest in arts and culture, I think what gets lost in that is the people writing about arts and culture. Um, so I, I just feel like there needs, I mean, even in our um, time at Three Views, fundraising has been a really difficult challenge because there aren't a ton of institutions that think about investing in critics and criticism the way they think about investing in a new play or mm -hmm. you know giving residency to an artist or a director or things like that which is all wonderful and should happen yeah. but there's like not a ton of people who think oh I want to write a grant so this person can go train to be a critic um at least that's what we found so I think literally just more financial social emotional investment in the field and, and respecting it as something that you know, needs to continue alongside the advancement of the arts. I'll also just say, I think the culture around a lot of critics is a little stodgy. Um, again, I think I'm victim to being a little bit younger than a lot of my peers, but like, I know when I go see a show, we're all in the same critic section. I have a notebook, you have a notebook. Like, you know what we're <laughs> here to do. Talk to me. Like, or yeah. I find there's, there's like this ethos of, not wanting to show emotion or not wanting to stand up and give applause or, I mean, for the moment that you're in the theater, I know you're doing a job, but you're also a part of the audience. And I think it bodes well to still have a spirit of optimism and, and positivity, even if you don't like the show. And sometimes I think just the culture around criticism is, is not where I'd like it to be just yet. Oh, Brittany, I think, I hope you keep that and don't lose it as you age <laughs> because those are I'm really... keeping it. <laughs> I just want more people to party with me. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> let's all chat. Let's have a good time. I mean, certainly I think amongst some of my peers that I've gotten to know in like the BIPOC Critics Lab, a lot of the critics of color, we chat. That's just the name of the game. But I'd like to see that with the more senior folks too. As Brittany was talking about that, it doesn't, it's not exactly, but that this idea of the, the critics and the where they sit in relation to what they're watching or even in relation to the people around them. I didn't remember. So when I was at the Times reviewing, you know, I was never at the time Ben Brantley and Charles Isherwood were the two sort of lead critics. And I was at sometimes I was like at the head of the kids table, like I would just <laughs> review their whatever they didn't want. to review. <laughs> but there were occasional exceptions like I would be usually like off off Broadway covering stuff. And occasionally Ben would be there. And um, and I know and think very highly of Ben. And he was aware of the fact to, to quote what Sarah was saying before of this idea of the times as the as the monolith which has been dented more than a little bit over the recent years. But Ben, to his credit, was very aware of that perception. And so if he was seeing, he loved to like break Basil Twist or, or um, mm. some of Susan Larry Parks' early works, or, you know, like he loved to be on the, in on the ground floor of somebody exciting. And the way you find them is to go off Broadway or off, off yeah. Broadway. 
Um, but I remember seeing him at something that just wasn't really working. It wasn't good. And I would just see him take his notebook and just like full close it and put it in his back pocket. Like he was mm. aware of the, the clout that came with his job. And it wasn't really in anyone's interest for him to slam something that was playing for 30 people. And, you know, like it, it, that just was a, not a good use of what he brought and what his institution brought to it. So he loved to elevate stuff that he found down there. And if it, if it wasn't going to be a case of elevating, just, I got, I got nothing to say here, which I think was which yeah. is commendable. So he didn't want to be Guffman and waiting for Guffman. He didn't want everybody <laughs> looking at him to be like, where is he? <laughs> right. And, and then like, you couldn't, like, you would, I would watch people watch him. Like we're probably, yeah. we're even Brittany and I are probably around to a lesser degree of like seeing people like, what'd you think? What'd you think? And like, and that's like, that really shouldn't matter that much, but it kind of does in the ecosystem. And you just kind of figure that out. Yeah. Wow. So uh, in that regard, and Brittany, of what you said about investment and um, the lack of it, um, do you do you think that's also um, a symptom of a lack of funding in journalism as a whole? Because um, I know with the political environment we currently live in, journalism and art and news outlets are a little under attack, I would say, in terms of, um, you know, integrity. Journalists are getting attacked uh, in, uh, literally and figuratively. Um, and I wonder if it's a bigger symptom of a bigger problem. I certainly think so. I mean, I think I wouldn't even say only in theater criticism. I'm just noting, noticing a lot of my friends who do this journalism writing in magazines and newspaper things for a job. They're just not a ton of outlets for us all. And if there are, there aren't a ton of spots. It's yeah. It seems to be kind of like a scarcity model happening right now. I think mm. unfortunately we've lost a lot of publications or they've been bought out by other folks. Uh, there aren't a lot of staffed positions um, and certainly like no one is doing what we do at Three Views, which is hire three different people to talk about one thing. You know, it's, mm -hmm. you have the person who talks about all the things, the one person. So I think, I'm not sure if you guys saw that video, Patty Lupone was at a movie premiere recently and was speaking to Variety. And, you know, people were kind of asking her, are you really quitting Broadway? And she was like, nah, but I think <laughs> a point that she said, which was really interesting is that, you know, people, don't talk and invest in arts and culture, like the actual industry that it is, especially in our city. Yeah. We're not hearing that a ton, I think, from like our politicians are, I mean, in the pandemic, we called on senators, we called on Schumer, we did save our seats, but in a regular everyday, you know, just in the everyday rhetoric, I don't think we hear a lot about investment, certainly in live performance right now. Um, you know, I think what might be required is a renaissance, something to remind people that this industry is happening. It's here. I know I talked to my friends outside of the theater world to know nothing about this. And they, you know, they, they don't have a clue what's happening on Broadway. They don't have a clue of who's up and coming. They don't know any playwrights. And, yeah. you know, I mean, I don't think our field is as woven into general popular culture. And I think if we get it more into general popular culture, it becomes something people care about more and want to invest in and want to keep alive. So I don't know. It's it's probably always been this way. I'm I'm not exactly sure, but um, I think we just genuinely need to get more people interested and invested in keeping theater alive, and that will reverberate into keeping all jobs alive. I think that's spot on. What you just said, Brittany, made me think of. Um... Um, my set designer for yoga play that I directed here at Syracuse Stage is Ann Byersdorf, and she uh, she was the associate set designer on Company, which just won the Tony for Best Set. And she said that um, during COVID, when everyone was in quarantine, she worked on a horse farm near her house in New Jersey just to be outside, and she loves horses, and just, just to keep herself busy. And she said the the quickest way to be humble is to just not work in the theater and work on a farm where no one cares what your what Broadway house you're working at or and, and to my is, house my <laughs> parents sister family to this day they don't know anything I mean 
if a major celebrity is in a show, maybe they know about it. The Michael Jackson musical, they were like, oh, take us to that. But they don't have a clue. And it's not like they're ignorant or misinformed. It's just, we're not on the radar. <laughs> yeah. We've been talking about that all week in terms of engaging with their communities. And if we were perhaps maybe a little more engaged, you know, people would have, and it doesn't have to be Broadway. It can be any anywhere you live that is doing theater around the country so that that community is tapped into what's going on on stage and maybe have feel an investment. But yeah, I think you're really onto something. But I also think the theater industry uh, shoots itself in the foot constantly on this, on this front. Like they're saying, we need younger, we need younger audiences. We need more engagement. We need, you know, uh, all these things that we need. I just keep thinking back to when Jeremy Harris was um, uh, when on Broadway with, with, uh, with slave play and Rihanna tweeted something about it, very favorable during the show, and he hit her back on on Twitter. And like the the old guard went into full meltdown about the, de- breach, the breaches of decorum and how they, the, the the you know. And it got very, it was very thinly veiled, and sometimes not so thinly veiled. You know, just like about who who really has any business being here appreciating live theater. Um, and it's like, well, like there's a whole lot of conversations that need to happen around this. And the critics really need to be not at the center of it, but not far from the center, like really part of just what is going on here and what is this how we like it? And if not, let's be honest about what we like and don't like about it and try and do something to make it better. I, oh my gosh, you're a romantic. Did, it, did any of you see on Twitter, Peter Marks and that picture of the guys in baseball hats sitting in front of him at the theater this week? And he said, <laughs> should... Should people be wearing hats at the theater or not? And I'm like, who cares? Yeah. I'm just happy they're there. Right. You can wear whatever you want. You can wear sunglasses with all I care, as long as you're there. I mean, like, why is that a question? Well, the hats obstruct the view, Melissa. So <laughs> that's an actual yeah. baseball cap. Top <laughs> hats. Top hats are a problem. <laughs> Lincoln. <laughs> and, and we all know what happened to him. So yeah, right. <laughs> wow. So, I just saw talking about an underdog too. Yeah. Right. Also, just the, the it's. I think it's fabulous that the um, theaters are trying to figure out how they can like not police what the audience does. And I'm kind of having a. I, I want a critic to go around the country and like do a review of how theaters are handling this because it's kind of hilarious. Like I've been in spaces where it's like that big insert that you can't not take out of your program because it's like this large. <laughs> um, like it's part of a curtain speech, or it's like in a tiny place in a plaque near the bathroom, like whatever the thing is that we're trying to do, I think is really honorable. And we're in a very clumsy growth moment in our field. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so it's really funny to be like, how do you tell people that they can be themselves when they want them here, but also audiences are shrinking and we don't know how to market. And like, yeah, it's all of the above, right? Like we need to accept the hats, the Rihanna tweets, whatever gossip drives people you know whatever leah michelle gossip whatever like people we if we want to be more of a populist art form and i I mean that in a good sense like we want to be more reachable that's great if a show is actually for a very specific group of people that's great it needs to be all of the above so this welcoming and and this curiosity as clumsy as it is um i just want us to stop yelling at each other about it because yeah. like we're all just trying to get people to come see the thing that people are making and we and championing it with while also having a perspective and um holding ourselves to our opinions and our own um you know our own ability to see something that works for us or doesn't is super important um like i think one of the biggest problems we've had at three views is like there was one cycle where we had a review of a show and everyone who submitted was just like it's amazing just to, that this is here and Brittany and I were like do we want to push people to like say something a little you know <laughs> criticize you and <laughs> we landed on a no we were just like this is the moment we're capturing the moment if yeah. it's we we're not the times if someone comes back and looks at this show we want them to see what it was in the moment to these people and if everyone just is like oh my god it's amazing that this thing exists fine do we wish that there is a little bit more point of view for sure but ultimately like Brittany said if things are happening too quickly um and a, a large part of the job of criticism is to capture a moment and so it's the same as like if I go to the New York Performing Arts Library and I'm looking at an old piece of criticism, 
um, I'm aware that it's from a specific time and a place and a person. And, and, and anyway, I just like the championing, the championing is of what we're doing is fully part of criticism. Yeah, let's get into three views. Uh, how do you see it growing and evolving? What are your goals? Uh, I know it's a, it's a moving target because as you said, you know, fundraising is hard and we want to pay people for their time and talent. Um, and you two are doing the hard work. Uh, yeah, what are you, how's it going? <laughs> okay, I'll start. Thank you for asking. Um, I'll say scaling is a big one for us. I think our dream would be, we're about to publish our first issue. We kind of took a break over the summer, our first issue of our second season, as we're kind of calling it. Um, I won't spoil what that show is, but um, I think there's a world in which we'd love to publish, you know, issues about, and for anyone that doesn't know, Three Views publishes three views on one play. It's usually a, like a review or reflection, an inside view, which is still has a critical point of view, but is in discussion with someone in, on the creative team of a show. And then a purview, which can take a non-traditional form. It's been poetry, it's been audio recordings, but someone just lends their you know, point of view in a medium they feel really attached to. So we'd love to be able to curate issues like that on multiple shows um, in a month. We obviously just want to hire more people and not only support them financially, but, um, you know, have them lend their voice to our publication. Um, one thing we're excited about that we've actually started to tap into is partnering with other organizations. So we actually have two organizations. One is the Front Porch Arts Collective. They're based in Boston and they have a young critics program for students. And another one is called Teen Connection. And it's here based in the city. They also have a group of high schoolers that they train in different, um, yeah, different roles in the arts. So I think we want to keep getting on the radar beyond New York and like mm -hmm. in schools, in universities and show young people this model show young people that criticism is a job that they can do. I know when I was, a, I mean, not even a kid, a few years ago, I didn't <laughs> ever think this could be a possibility for me. It just wasn't on the radar of yeah. my mind of something to do. So I think introducing our specific model as an option, like not everything has to be one person on this one publication has all the thoughts. And then just getting it on the radar of people that maybe have never considered themselves or seen themselves in this space. I think, um, yeah, we have a unique ability to do that because we make the rules. I love that you're working, starting to work with teens and younger people. That's so exciting. I will just say that we're, we're trying to um, reflect the field. And so we're really open to hearing from people who want to publish, who want to write. Like there's no, um, it's, it's a very open door and I think it should stay that way. And I also like that, like we, we are um, a narrow channel, right? We're trying to do one show a month. We're trying to expand, but we wanna really be focused. We're not trying to become like an aggregate. So when we talk about growth, I just wanna highlight that I think the simplicity of our mission is gonna stay at the center, no matter what we do, three perspectives on one show. Um, and I, I think I, I want, I, <laughs> I think there's a publication for every single person out there in the world. And I really want us to be a place where you come and you learn what it was like to sit in a chair and look at one show from three very radically different perspectives every month. Email us. We're three views theater. That's theater ER at Gmail. We always love hearing from people. Awesome. Awesome. So we have a question from our attendees. And uh, it is many smaller regional theaters like Syracuse Stage and Red House, which is another professional theater in our community, are now emphasizing their connection with their community, choosing works they feel will resonate with their specific audiences and emphasizing inclusion in their programs. Is this a national trend? And do you think that it's part of the future of theater criticism? And Eric, you live here. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I hope, well, I hope that everyone was always thinking about their community in terms of programming because they mm -hmm. would sell tickets if they weren't creating, producing what people wanted to see. But in terms of some of the other things you talked about, um, 
Yeah, I mean, I think theater fits in, and again, and this is walking back a little bit what I said before about streaming theater, because, you know, whatever the new movie that opens or the new album that comes out, that is the same no matter where you live. Everyone is experiencing it, the same product, no matter where there's TV shows, same. Theater is one of the relatively few realms where if you're not uh, meeting your community, however you define community, like where they are, like you're not going to stay in business. Like that, that is, that's just so crucial. So it seems like such a no-brainer to, to do that. Um, in terms of on the criticism side, where to, where to, I mean, I sort of feel like that comes with the, I mean, we are who we are. We live where we live. Like we ingest the air that we ingest. Um, provided you are, you know, staffing your critical ranks with a truly representative, you know, cross section of the of, of the people whose voices we should be hearing. Um, I don't want to say that kind of takes care of itself, but mm-hmm. yes, we can and should be encouraging um, theaters to, you know, make their individual performances stronger or you know however we define that um but also at their core mission just like are you doing the the right job in this time for this community um and that's and that's a little bit grandiose and presumptuous but so what like that's like (laughs) it needs to be done everyone should be doing it ourselves included that's true yeah yeah uh I actually, um, I'm remembering, uh, Sarah Rose, your, uh, beautiful article that, when, when did we release that? Like a year ago where you had, um, all those four dramaturgs talk about dramaturgy. And, um, and I think a lot of it, uh, is relevant to this conversation. So I just want to encourage people listening to go visit threeviews.com, three views theater, right? <laughs> See, I've already forgotten. And and Either look at yeah. And look at check it out. Look at uh some of the wonderful works that they have on there. There there's a pretty robust catalog in just two years' time of what you all have. And Eric continuing to do the hard work as an educator and a freelancer and continuing to be a great voice in our field. This was such a great conversation, y'all. I'm so thankful. Thank you for Thank having me. Thank you so that. much, Melissa. Yeah. Thank you for having us. I should say this hour flew by. Thank I you. I know, right? Good. Good. That means we did it right. <laughs> well, I um, this concludes our Cold Read digital panels, and I'm really, really happy we did it. It's just nice to be connected, even if it's through Zoom again. You're all so brilliant, and I hope you keep thriving. The same for you. Thank you for listening. Visit SyracuseStage.org to learn more about our current 22-23 season. Original music for Syracuse on Stage was composed by Luther Masanto.